Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I don't really, what does that really mean? All right, listen up. This illustration might help you. He's asking a question and answering a question here that is a little bit more thinking. What they might be saying, what they might be thinking is this. All right, why be good then? In fact, if I'm unrighteous, the more unrighteous I am, that means the more righteous God is. So I'm really doing God a favor by being more unrighteous because the more unrighteous I am, God really shines. The worse I am, the better he is. Wow, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make him better. I'm going to make everybody really like the grace of God. I'm going to be as bad as I can be. Now, is that stupid? Say amen. I just indicted all of us. Because later on in the same book, he really speaks to Christians and he says, well, you folks, you got brain damage? You, you think, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound? And he says the same thing. God forbid. No, 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 no. Let me show you again how stupid it is, if you don't mind. I want to really drill this home. Husband and wife, they get married. Partly through the marriage, the husband now starts cheating on the wife. And he starts running all out. The wife still remains faithful. He's not faithful. He comes to her and says, Hey, you ought to be thanking me right now because the more unfaithful I am, the more faithful you look. And I want to say this very tenderly. We're laughing and having a good time, but there are many people listening to me right now that maybe not have heard that argument but are feeling the pain of some unfaithful partner in their life. So it goes out a little bit more and he comes back and she's a little bit upset now. She's been very faithful, but now she starts really talking into her husband's life. And he says, hey, you can't do anything. You've got to be patient with me. You're supposed to be all patient. I'm the guy here, and I'll come back right now. Blah, blah, blah. And she gets more angrier. You know what that reminds me of? That kind of reminds me of a little bit of this passage. Now, this may sting when I tell you this. The Lord in His faithfulness and His patience and His righteousness, no matter how unrighteous we are, He is still righteous. And part of His righteousness is to allow you to go as far as you want to go in your lifestyle. We've already learned that the goodness of God can bring about repentance. We've already taught you that, okay? But God still says He is just as righteous to His own character that if you continue in sin... There will be a payday coming where whether that sin itself will so swallow you up through drinking and accidents or whether you get a disease or whether it's through crime or something, you will end your life sooner rather than later. And if you end your life, there still is going to be future judgment besides the judgment you're under right now. So God says, as true as I am to show my faithfulness, I'm just as true to my wrath. Now, if you need another verse for salvation now in this, you want to keep that in mind that says, if I believe on him, I have eternal life. But if I don't believe, John 3.36 says, the wrath of God still abides on me. So I can do all of this stuff, but I still have a payday coming. Now, that's for the unsaved. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we might have a little longer leash. Some of us right now are using our, uh, uh, using our grace. No, we're not. We're abusing the grace. But we're out there doing what we need to do. There will be a judgment coming. Now, it's not that the Lord is up there just, woohoo! I'm going to judge these people. The Spirit of God says He grieves over our sin. And so that's why He wants to deal with us in such a way. All right, let's go back here. So why bother being good? It's a questioning God's 
righteousness. So the response is, that's distorted logic. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? In other words, if he doesn't deal with this, how can he not judge the world? He has to judge the world. So now the juror, maybe one of you are thinking out there, I still don't get that. He expands it a little bit more in the next verse, verse 7. So why are we condemned? Why would we condemn? He's supposed to be faithful. He's supposed to keep his promises. I know I do things wrong, but that's all right because God's bigger than my sin. So why are we condemned? Let's go to the verse. But someone might argue, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? See, even if I lie, look at the truth of God still abounds. So the more I lie, the again, the greater he is. So why am I going to be judged as a sinner? So what they're really questioning, again, is God's truthfulness. So really, objection three and objection four is very similar to each other. So he's really showing that faulty logic. And look at the response. You know what? We get what we deserve. And why not say, as we were slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. And underline this. Their condemnation is just. So no matter how good or how bad we are, no matter what our motives for being good, watch this, whatever our motives are for being good or our, how we think to justify why we're bad, did you catch that? What our motives are to be good or justify why we're bad, it doesn't really matter. God is still righteous and judge. He is truthful. He is faithful. And that he will still deal with the truth that's found in God's word. And it still boils down to you need to take ownership of your own sin, admit that, need of a Savior, and it has to be found in the Lord who died and rose again, and now you know that truth, you need to come to Him by faith alone, and that part is the beautiful part of God's grace. And so I don't know where you are in that journey, but He's leading us to a decision that we're going to need to make, which now brings us to number five. The fifth and final objection is, are Jewish people better people? Now I put Jewish in there because of the verse, and it's a little... Difficult sometimes to understand, but it says, well, what then? Are we better than they? Now, remember, Paul is writing that. So is he saying, we, I'm like you, Jewish. I'm Jewish, you're Jewish, we're Jewish. Or could it refer to those who are saved because he's saved and the people in Rome that are in the church are saved. So are we better than they are, than the Jews and the Gentiles? So they're questioning a man's sinfulness. And the response is, no, of course not. We're not better than they are. Not at all. If we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles or anybody who's not Jewish are all under sin. We've all done something wrong. Now, for just a moment, I'm going to go off on a brief little tangent. For those of you that might think that he is referring to we Jewish people rather than maybe we Christians, and you're dealing with Jewish people who really feel that they are God's chosen people, and we understand where they get all of that. We really do. We also know they've been kind of set aside and the church now becomes the peculiar people and God still has more to deal with the Jews in the future, but they are still his people. Are you tracking so far? When I talk to Jewish people and we can have a healthy conversation and it's necessary for me to bring them to this conclusion, I like them to understand that they're not better. They're just different. Did you catch that? I want to show them grace. They're not better because they're Jewish. They're just different. Have you ever shared the gospel with a Jewish person? And you often hear people that are involved in Jewish evangelism, they will say, oh, that's a completed Jew. Have you ever heard that term before? They are a completed Jew when they trust Christ as Savior. How many have ever heard that before? You trust Christ, that means you're a completed Jew. Would you raise your hand if you heard that? Okay. 
Some of you have. For those of you that have, then listen to this. I prefer not to use that term. I understand what you mean by that. Okay, you're an unsaved Jew. Now you're a real Jew because you trusted Christ. I, I get all of that, so you're completed. But in reality, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. He's always going to be a Jew whether he's saved or not. So you don't really get completed. You just get what? Born again. You know what I mean? You just get saved as a Jew. So I don't really like the word, oh, you're an incomplete Jew until you trust Christ. Think about that for a moment. It's like saying you're an incomplete man until you trust Christ. And if you're ever going to say that to somebody, make sure the guy is littler than you are, all right? All right? The point of the matter is they are always that, but they need Christ. Are they better? Not much, but they are different, and they need Christ. And I'll tell you, sometimes to Jewish people that are really open to the Word of God and their own writings, you can lead Jewish people to Christ because they really want to know the Lord. Some of them do. Some of them don't, and they're just as lost as unsaved Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, and everyone else, but they need to know Christ. All right, now we're going to get into the supporting testimony. This will go a little bit faster because now he's coming to the end to present this to a final decision. So he's gone through all the objections and the responses of where he's at on all of this, and I hope that maybe you would get that as well. So now he's going to go to a supporting testimony. So pick it up, if you will, at uh, verse 9 here, okay? Romans chapter 3 at verse 9, and uh, let's kind of lead into our section here with that passage. I, I think that'll help us understand better. All right, verse 9 says, What then, are we better than they are? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, they're all under sin. Which, if you really want to say that, that means everybody in the whole world are sinners. And then verse 10, he opens up with a supporting testimony, as it is written. Now, if you'll look from verse 10 all the way down to verse 18, in my Bible, I don't know what your Bible looks like, they have capitalized every one of the words that are in the verses from halfway through verse 10 through all the way verse 18. Now what that is really telling you is that all of those verses can be found taken from the Old Testament. So what is happening right now is the Apostle Paul is grabbing from the Old Testament, speaking to the Jews, truths that most of them, if not all of the Jewish people that have been raised deeply in Judaism, would understand what these are. They've heard these before. They probably studied them and memorized them before. And now he's building his testimony with these. Now, in this particular passage, verses 10 through verse 18, you're going to find 13 statements that's bringing a person to understand they are fully guilty and needing of a Savior. 13 statements to support support that they are all under sin. If you also want to do a study from verse 10 through verse 18, you can find these verses found in at least seven different Old Testament passages. So he's really bringing up the big guns using their own Bible to help them know Christ the Savior. Now this is a whole sermon in itself and I don't want to take a lot of time because we're going to rattle through this quickly because I think you understand it. But my point is simply this. He is using these verses to support his point. Now, pause. I want to give you a little tangent right here because some of you are here at this church mainly because you like expository Bible teaching. I am an expositor. I've taught it. I've studied it. Some of you might feel like I don't exposit it. Some of you have different styles of it. I've been in this long enough to know almost every other book will give you a different way to exposit Scripture. But primarily, this is my style, what God has given me, the best I know how to do at this point. So this is what I'm doing verse by verse. At the same time, there's a lot of people that are out there that will never go to another church unless it's verse-by-verse study. And I get that. And there are some real teachings out there that, it, that the only way you study, the only way you preach is expository. I think primarily that's the safest and best way, and I could teach a whole series. I'm going to be in Singapore doing this on a doctoral level. But I want you to know this. In this passage of Scripture, 
what Paul is really doing is he's doing a topical study. He's not going back over the entire Old Testament verse by verse to teach to the Jewish believers in Rome. What he's doing is he's building his case on a point topically by grabbing verses in the Old Testament topically underneath the topic of all under sin. So there is a legitimate example of topical textual teaching in Scripture. So there's a time to do that. Now, at the same time, since I'm such an expositor, I want to beat this up a little bit. If you go to a church and they're going to do topical or textual sermons, it can still be expositorily given to you as long as they're not giving you three points in a poem and a lot of dance jokes and stories and they're not staying true to what the Word has to say. So they're still exposing, expositing that passage of Scripture, even though that Scripture passage might not connect to another passage over there, but it's connecting to the topic that's at hand. If you all could follow what I just said, say, uh-huh. All right, one more thing. I eat, Carol, thank, thank Carol for this. I eat a pretty balanced meal, and Carol gives that to me. When I am sick, I have a medicine cabinet in our bathroom, our upstairs, as you all do. When I'm sick, I don't look there and I see, we got aspirins, we got this, we got that, blah, blah, all these different pills. I don't say, okay, I'm sick, I need help right now, so let me stop, let me start at the top shelf, the left-hand side, and I'm going to take one different pill, and I'm going to work my way through that entire medicine cabinet. I don't do that. Why don't I do that? Because it won't work, all right? I've got to take what I need at that point. So right now, he, in a sense, is doing a topical study underneath the topic of all under sin. All right, that being said, I think you got enough. So let's rattle through these. Fact number one, as it is written, the way of life of the accused is mentioned in verses 10 through 12. Those that are the sinners, those that are all under sin, the accused, all under sin, and it's really driving into their character. Here's what it says. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together all have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, that's a lot of not even, none, blah, blah, blah. Four different times it's emphasizing over and over again that there's not one perfect person. There is not one person who is totally righteous. Get your pens out. Let's go over them just those phrases alone because he's hammering that the way of life, no matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how respectable you are, no matter how much you rejected God, your character says you are separated from God. And We didn't even get into the old nature, all right, that you were born separated from God. Look at it. You ready? There is none righteous. Underline the word none. Not even one, underline not even one. Go a little bit further. There is none who seeks for God. None, underline that. All have turned aside, together have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Over and over again, hammering the fact as he's talking to the jurors right now, the testimony is there is nobody that's perfect enough to go to heaven. Nobody is righteous. Fact number two. He now moves away from their character and he gets into their conversation. So he talks about the words of the accused. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. Their poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Man, just to read that kind of makes you want to get a glass of water, doesn't it? I mean, this is terrible. Circle the word throat. Circle the word tongue. Circle the word lips. Circle the word mouth. All of it is in a conversation. What it is is a cesspool of garbage that's inside of them. And when it's inside of them, we know it's in their heart, it's in their mind, and it comes out of their voice. And... and Again, indicting them that they are all under sin. Fact number three, the wickedness of the accused in their conduct. Character is kind of like inside driving it. Conversation comes out their mouth. Conduct comes out their lifestyle. The wickedness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. And underline this last phrase, because I think this is the root of all of it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
So now he moves from the supporting testimony to the summarization. Verse 19 and 20. Here's what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now that specifically is speaking to Jewish people. In chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says even the Gentiles, even the heathen have the law of God written in their own heart and consciences. So everybody's under the law of some kind. The written law, some of them have it in their conscience. So that every mouth, I like that, every mouth, so it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, may be closed and all the world, whether you're Jew or Gentile, may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, the written law or the law in your heart, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We know that we're a sinner. Now, particularly, the written law lets us know that. So the whole world is accountable to God. Remember, it says, every mouth, all the world, accountable. The world is also without excuse. We covered that. So no matter what you bring, listen carefully. The jury is now hearing this about mankind and what the prosecutor is trying to say. No matter what is brought before you, this is a criminal who has no excuse. He can't say, the devil made me do it. He can't say, I was dropped on my head when I was a kid, and that's why I'm bad. He can't say, it was my religious upbringing, or my non-religious upbringing, or my parents did all of this stuff, or my understanding of God. I did all... He can't blame anybody. There is nobody is without excuse. He is doomed and condemned, and he needs a Savior. So what good is the law then? It makes us aware of sin, and it points us to Jesus Christ. And I love that. So what's the final verdict? We are guilty. We are guilty. Well, whew, that is a lot of junk today, wasn't it? Oh, man, that's tough stuff. So I want to bring this to a close now. We're done with all of that. You got it. Next week, I'm going to tell you what is really, 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 really good news. So if some of you are saying, man, this was so down and depressing, doom and gloom. Do I want to come back and hear that again next week? The answer is come back next week. I'll build off of this week. But next week, I want to talk about the wonder. Watch this now. Here it is. Having a right relationship with God forever. That's next week. But some of you aren't going to be with us next week. So I want to remind you that we are in a book that starts out with sin. But in Romans chapter 8... It does say this. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is reminding that everybody is under sin. Everybody is condemned. Everybody is under the wrath of God. Everyone's going to be judged. And the ultimate of all of that is going to be separation in hell. That's 1, 2, and 3. But in Romans 8, after he comes after 4, 5, and 6, 7, he's reminding them. Watch this. Look up here. Look up here. This is so beautiful. Catch this. There is no condemnation for any of those three groups to those who are now in Christ Jesus, and you become in Christ, not by your good deeds, but by your simple faith alone in Christ. So if you bring the message of salvation to your family and friends, and you need to tell them at times that they do have that potential of being separated from God forever, but at the same time remind them of the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, that they come to the Lord, all they need to say is, Lord, I own my guilt. I know I've done things wrong. I may not be as bad as so-and-so, but I'm also not as good as so-and-so. I'm still not perfect. I own my guilt. And by that, Lord, I know nothing I do myself will get me to heaven, but I want to thank you that you have reached down to me and you're going to pull me out of this sea of sin and bring me into eternal life with you. And all I have to do is to look to you as the Lord who died 
and rose again. And right now, Lord, I'm hopeless. And so I'm coming to you by my faith. And Jesus says, he that believes on me right now has everlasting life. Folks, I plead with you that you do that. That way you can get out from underneath all this other junk and enter into the glory of a relationship with Christ that begins now and carries you into eternity. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you for being so attentive and locked into this message and so careful that you wouldn't miss anything too. Those of you that commented, I want to thank you for that. But right now, this is a quiet time between you and the Lord. I don't want you to see God up there as an angry God who wants to squash you. I want you to see that you have a God up there who loves you so much that he brought you this teaching today as if you're on a railroad track and a train is coming. And no matter how you've lived your life, he wants you to get off that track. And he knows that no good deed will get you off that track but simple faith in Jesus Christ. So would you right now take this moment, because we never know when we'll have the next moment, and simply humbly before him say, Lord, I know I've done things wrong. I know I can't get to heaven by any good deed I do myself. I look at my past and I see where I've, I have bowed down to other gods, so to speak, whether it's God of popularity or pleasure or power, possessions. And I, I know that's not right. I replaced you with that and those things. And maybe some of you are saying, I, I've been so respectable. I've been, I really tried to be good. I mean, I really, I care for the homeless on this island. I do care for people. I do let them in when the traffic is bad. And I, I do try to do, I, I give, I, I try to help people. I commend you on that, dear ones. But Jesus says, you're still sinners. And I think you know that in your heart right now. You know you're not perfect. And all of you who are involved in some religious activity and depending upon that, I commend you on trying to do good and even trying to connect to God, but make sure there's only one way to connect to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that the truths that are found accurately in Scripture is what you need to know. So why don't you right now simply say, Lord, I do know that you're the Lord, and I do know you died and rose again. And right now, Lord, I believe you would forgive me of my sin because in the word you said you would. And I'm taking you at your word. And I'm believing you. Not just believing in you, but I'm believing you. And therefore, Father, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting you now to give to me eternal life. And I thank you that your unconditional promise, that if I do that, I'll never lose it. I'll be disciplined, but I won't lose it, is an unconditional promise. It seals the deal. Would there be anyone in here that today you're ready to make that eternal decision? It's a big one. It's a simple one. It's a critical one. And it needs to be done expediently. And some people would say immediately. But if you're ready to trust Christ as Savior, then you do it right now in your mind. Walking an aisle, filling out a card, standing up, me praying for you, doing anything outward as religious as that is still won't get you into heaven. It's trusting Christ. So is there anyone in here today that's saying already to the Lord, I thank you, Lord, for paying for my sins. I'm trusting in you to give me eternal life. And you'd like for me to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand. And when you do, I'm going to simply say thank you. And I see that. And I'll pray for you. Because I'm welcoming you in. Would there be anyone here today that's ready to place your faith alone in Christ for the full forgiveness of your sin? And you've done that. You've said, thank you, Lord, for giving to me eternal life. I'm trusting in you. Would you slip up your hand right now? 
Thank you. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that with these truths we really see the dilemma that we're in. But at the same time, we can see that you love us and that we don't have to be in a world of condemnation when we place our faith alone in you. So, Father, I pray that right now our hearts are turned toward you as Christians, that as we go into the world, we with grace and love and dignity and patience build relationships to those who don't know you with the purpose of helping them come to faith alone in you and to go on then to become a fully obedient worshiper of you. Father, as we begin to prepare for our communion time, we're going to remember what you've done for us on the cross, but it's not the event, it's not the taking of all of this, it's the person and the work of you. And so, Lord, we worship you right now as a believer in you, knowing that our relationships with others are in order. We love you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.